Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 25, and I'm sure there's going to be something in here that you wanted me to address that I'm not going to, because it's a long passage. Um, But today, in particular, I want us to focus on prayer and God's promises. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, speak to us now in your word. Speak to our hearts. Give us faith to receive your word in such a way that we might grow, that we might glorify you, that you might reprove us for our unbelief, strengthen our faith, that we might believe with the utmost certainty the gospel that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 5. This is God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. 
And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is God's word. Our passage this morning takes us to the beginning of the good news according to Luke. But it begins, you'll see, at a dark time. It was a time of darkness, a time of silence, a time of waiting. It was the days of Herod. That's what it calls the days of Herod, king of Judea. Who was Herod? Sometimes he's called Herod the Great because of his massive building projects throughout Israel. He was the one who had rebuilt much of the temple in Jerusalem to please the Jews. But he was also the one who, on the coast of Israel, at Caesarea Maritima, built a temple to Caesar Augustus as well, that he might be worshipped too, to please the Romans. Herod was a shrewd politician. He was not faithful to the Lord He was only half Jewish, he was part Idumean, and he was ruthless. He wasn't just known as Herod the Great, he was known as Herod the Vicious, Herod the Murderous. And this old king had killed anyone he deemed to be any threat at all to his kingdom. When he slaughtered the innocents at Bethlehem, it wasn't that far out of his normal modus operandi. He was ruthless and had killed multiple people from his own family. So saying it was the days of Herod was like saying it was the days of Nero or the days of Stalin. It was also a silent time in Israel, and we must remember this to grasp the significance of our passage this morning. It only takes us a flip of the page to get from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The Old Testament, which I might remind you, ends with this promise that we heard in our passage from the angel, that before the coming of the Lord, God would send Elijah the prophet to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children, the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. That's how the Old Testament ends. So this passage links the Old Testament and the New Testament together. But between those times, 400 years had passed. It was 400 years of suffering. They had been conquered by Alexander the Great. They had been conquered by generals fighting over the land from Alexander's army afterwards. They had been conquered by the Romans. The temple had been defiled by foreign rulers multiple times. There had been no new scripture during this time, in the time of suffering. Corruption abounded in the priesthood. It was often bought with a bribe. And there was corruption in the king, obviously. So in many ways, the state of the people waiting for 400 years at this time was not unlike the the state of Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, waiting for the redemption of Israel. It was a time of violence. It was a time of corruption. It was a time of waiting. And it was a time of little faithfulness. 
Many had gone astray. But God had preserved for himself a remnant in Israel. And here we are introduced to this dear, faithful couple, his children, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God. Not righteous in the absolute sense of the term as in sinless, because we see Zechariah was rebuked for his unbelief in our very passage, but righteous in the sense that they walked blamelessly before God and following all the commandments of the Lord. See, no one could have charged this couple with any open, scandalous sin. They were righteous. They lived their lives according to God's word. And like all the godly in the Bible, they are held out to us as examples and encouragement. How wonderful would it be if the same could be said for us, that we lived blamelessly before God in a dark and difficult time. Zechariah was also a priest of the Lord. And priests were allowed to marry anybody in Israel, but they considered a, a special blessing to marry a, a wife from the tribe of Levi, who was also from the tribe of Levi. And Elizabeth wasn't just from the tribe of Levi, she was from the family of Aaron, the high priest. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth are, are held out to us here as righteous and as very blessed. Yet there was something that was not good. There was something that was not well, for this pious couple had no child. And in any culture, having no child is a sorrow. But especially in Israel. In Israel, being barren was considered an affliction. It was a disgrace, even a punishment. At the last verse of our passage this morning, Elizabeth calls it her reproach that her reproach had been lifted by God. And this is another reminder to us that bad circumstances don't always mean some indication of God's disfavor with us. Because Zechariah and Elizabeth were godly people. God allows even his own dear, beloved children to suffer. God allowed his own son to suffer. Now, Elizabeth was barren, but that doesn't mean God was unfaithful. Elizabeth being barren puts her in a long line of godly women who waited on the Lord in the Bible, and they did not wait in vain. For a curious fact, every time it's mentioned in the Bible that a woman was barren, she ends up having a baby. It was said of Sarah, of Rebecca, of Rachel, of Hannah, of Manoah's wife. The Lord gave them all children in his time. And like Abraham and Sarah before them, Zechariah and Elizabeth had waited long. No doubt they had probably given up praying. The time had passed for having a child. Because here in our passage we see Zechariah won't even believe it when the angel tells him that he's going to have a baby. He, 
He's rebuked for his unbelief, so he's probably not still praying about it. But they had no doubt prayed many times for a child, as you can see what a burden it was to Elizabeth. Now, the time had come for Zechariah to serve in the temple. So let me fill out this scene for us a little bit, because none of us have been to the temple. It was destroyed 2,000 years ago. We're not that all familiar with it. But Zechariah was a priest, and priests served in the temple. But in those days, there were about 18,000 priests in Israel. And they can't all get in there at the same time, right? So they've got to take turns. And so in Chronicles, the priests were split up into 24 divisions. Now, Zechariah is part of the division of Abijah, it tells us here in our passage. That's the eighth division. And each of these divisions would serve, would take turns serving for a week at a time, twice a year. So two times a week, and then they would all be there for the great feast of Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles. And now it was time for Zechariah to come uh, and serve for a week. His, his division was there, his team. Even then, the priests had to take turns uh, to see who would do which role. So they would cast lots to see who could offer up the incense. The highest honor you could do as a priest, as a regular priest, was to offer up the incense. And you were only allowed to do it one time in your whole life. If you did it, if God chose you to do it, you could never do it again. And from then on, the other priest called you rich and called you blessed. And Zechariah had been here many weeks, many years, because he's an old guy now. And the lot today falls to Zechariah. This is the greatest moment of his entire ministry. He will be able to enter into the tabernacle and go to the, the altar of incense and offer up as a representative for all the people this incense before God. It is the closest he will ever get to the most holy place. Hebrews chapter 9 actually speaks of the altar as belonging to the most holy place, even, what, even though it wasn't in the most holy place, it was in the holy place, but it belonged there. It was like going right before the throne. So let me explain that to you as well, because it will be helpful. As the priest would enter, the temple has two rooms. There's the first room, which is called the holy place, and in it there are three pieces of furniture. Behind the veil, there would be the second room, God's, God's own home on earth, the most holy place. And in the most holy place, there was only one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. It is God's footstool, God's throne. And no one was allowed it there except the, mo the high priest once a year. In the holy place, there were three things. On the right-hand side here, there would be uh, the table of showbread with the bread that was offered to the Lord that the priest would later eat. On the left-hand side, a little further up, there would be the lampstand. It was the only light in the, in the temple. And then right up as close 
as close to the curtain as it could get without burning it was the altar of incense. And that altar of incense signified the prayers of the people. Psalm 141 verse 2 says this, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Revelation 5, 8 says, spoke of golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You see, prayer was a big thing in Israel. It should be a big thing in all of God's church. God called his house a house of prayer for all peoples. And three times a day, people would gather outside in the temple courts to pray for, for three hours. It was in the morning, in the noon, noon, and then in the afternoon. Two times a day, in the morning and the evening, the priest would offer up the incense. So it would correspond uh, with the people praying outside in the morning and the evening. So this is the morning or the evening when Zechariah is going in there. I think it's the evening, my guess, because the crowd gathered outside. And for another reason that I'm going to tell you in a moment. But what would happen at this time is the priest, when he was chosen by Lot, he would go in there, he would pick out two friends or relatives who would go with him. The first would go up and clean up everything from the incense that was left over from the last time, and then he would back away, worshiping. The next would take coals from the altar, the sacrifice outside, and he would bring it in, and he would bring it in with the incense and place it before the altar, and then also back away, worshiping, and leave. So now Zechariah is left alone. He's the only one left. He's going to approach the altar, and he's going to place the incense on it. When he does, as he approaches it, they will ring a bell outside, and everyone outside in the courtyard will fall down on their face and pray for Israel. Pray for the redemption of Israel. He would offer up, Zechariah today will offer up this incense, and the smoke will come. It will go into the most holy place, like our prayers before God. And this teaches us a lot about really the culture of what worship was like in Israel. It reminds us a little bit of Revelation. Actually, in Revelation 8, it says this, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, like the people praying. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Well, this whole scene teaches us a lot about prayer. The first thing Gabriel says is that your prayers have been answered. This is the way the gospel starts with people praying. It's the way Acts starts. When Pentecost came, the people were praying. Prayer is a major, major theme in Luke. Only Luke tells us that when Jesus was baptized, he was praying. Only Luke tells us that when Jesus was transfigured, he was praying. Only Luke, I think, tells us 
that Jesus prayed all night before he chose his 12 disciples. Only Luke tells us that he was praying for Peter that he would repent when the night that he was betrayed and that when he returned, he would come and strengthen his brothers. Prayer is all over the book of Luke. And it begins, the whole gospel begins as a response to prayer. The people are praying. Zechariah is praying. The prayers are answered. And I want you to notice also, this is the way God designed it, that the prayers of the saints would be founded on the coals from the altar. Our prayers are founded on Christ's sacrifice. That's what we mean when we pray in Jesus' name, also for his sake. But through him, through his merit, through his atoning work, we can approach God with confidence. Not because we're blameless in God's sight on our own or anything like that. Secondly, I want you to notice too, the people don't just let the minister pray. They don't just let the, the priest pray. Oh, that's his job. He's going to do that. He's going to go in there and pray for us. And that's great. The people are all outside gathered. They're on their faces praying with the priest, with Zechariah. Not just the people who are there, but people all over. In Joppa later on, Peter will be at, the, at his rooftop praying at the hour of prayer. He says, when he would go to the temple, of course, in Acts, it was at the hour of prayer that he would come. Daniel, you remember, prayed three times a day. When he prayed later in Daniel chapter 9, he prayed and the angel Gabriel appeared. It was the last time that Gabriel had been seen more than 500 years before this moment. Gabriel appeared out, out all the way over in Assyria or Babylon uh, to Daniel. And he says this. He says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. That's how Daniel kept time when he was living in Babylon for 70 years, even after the temple had been destroyed. He was still gathering, as it were, with the people as much as he could from a distance at the same time. And so prayers of all people all over Israel, all the believers are gathered together, as it were, in the person of Zechariah as he approaches the throne and places the incense here to have it rise up before God. Brothers and sisters, prayer is the work of all the church. It's not just for the priest. It's you are all priests, brothers and sisters. That is what God has made you to be. You may approach the throne of grace with boldness. It is an amazing thing when God says, let us approach, the th when, when God allows us to approach that throne of grace we who are Gentiles, we who are far off, we who are sinful, God allows us to approach right up to the throne 
with boldness because of what Christ has done. This was an amazing thing that Zechariah had, uh, this privilege. Prayer is a solemn, wonderful privilege. It is as close as you can be, not just to heaven, but to the very center of heaven while you are on earth. I wonder how much we neglect such a gift, such a privilege. When was the last time you fell down on your face before the Lord and prayed? Prayer is this great theme we see in Luke. And rightly so, prayer is what the church was to be devoted to in Acts. The apostles said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. God works through prayer. God hears prayer. God answers prayer. Not just here in Luke, but all through the Bible. Before God moves to save, he usually first stirs up the people to pray for salvation. In Exodus, while they're crying out to the Lord, that's when God appears to Moses in a, in a, fl- a fire of, in the burning bush. In Judges, again and again and again, the people would, be, would cry out to the Lord for a, deli- a Savior, a Deliverer, and God would hear their prayer. He would answer and send them another judge to rescue his people. God loves to rescue his people as a response to prayer. For that reason, he usually stirs up our hearts that we might pray to receive those promises. God had promised to Abraham 440 years from now, I will rescue my people from a foreign land where they have been enslaved. So he had already promised it, but the people prayed for it. God promised that a Savior would come. The people were praying for it. It didn't lead them to apathy. It did not lead them to fatalism. When God gives us promises, it encourages us to pray. And we know that we're going to get it because he promised it. So we keep praying. The people will return to Israel after Daniel's prayer when Gabriel appeared to him. And Gabriel at that time spoke of these 70 weeks after which the Messiah would come and sin would be accomplished or righteousness would be accomplished, atonement would be accomplished. And now Gabriel appears again at the moment. The Savior is almost here. And he comes, and as Zechariah thinks that he's alone in the temple, and presenting the offering, probably waiting for it to burn, and stepping back, because the priest would not linger at the altar of incense. It was at the altar of incense that Nadab and Abihu were put to death. And so if people were, were, uh, would worry if the priest was there, they would retreat quickly and get out of God's presence so they wouldn't be killed. And then they would return to the people. And there, Zechariah sees he's not alone. At the right side of the altar, between the altar and the lampstand, Gabriel was standing there, and he says these wonderful words, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, 
Now, when he says, your prayer has been heard, which prayer? We wonder, some people think that Zechariah thought, well, this is a great opportunity for me to come quickly and present the incense and say, Lord, please give Elizabeth the son and step back. I don't think this is the case because he doesn't even believe it when, Zechari- when, when Gabriel tells him. He's probably praying for the redemption of Israel. But God also heard all the prayers that they prayed years ago. And no prayers are lost with God. They are filed away in heaven. They are, they are not forgotten. And God answers them in his time. They are not forgotten, though they might be delayed. Your prayers for your children might not be answered until long after you pass away. But no prayers are wasted. No prayers are wasted. God hears prayer. And God, in his wonderful way, is answering both the prayer for the redemption of Israel and their prayers from years back, probably, for a child. You will bear a son. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And if God names your child instead of you getting to name your child, it probably means there is something important about this child. This child is set apart for God. We see that also in the way that this child will not be allowed to drink wine or strong drink. And this reminds us of Hannah and Samuel when God at the temple promised that she would bear a child. That child would be dedicated. He would be a Nazarite, which would mean that you couldn't cut your hair, you couldn't touch anything dead, and you couldn't touch grapes or drink any wine. Now, we don't hear anything about John the Baptist's hair here, but the, the principle is the same. He is set apart to serve God in a special way. And um, we see just a few things about, about John, which I'll pass over uh, briefly. But his, first of all, his name will be John. He doesn't say, like with Jesus, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means the Lord saves. Here, John means the Lord is merciful or the Lord is gracious, but he doesn't bring out that meaning. It does show that the Lord is gracious, and it also shows that this child is set apart, belonging to God in a special way. Um, so we see that he will be set apart for God's service. He will be great before the Lord. Now, this is an important point, I think, too. What is greatness? Greatness before the Lord is true greatness. Now, John the Baptist he wasn't wealthy. He didn't have a big old home on the beach. He didn't have a bunch of academic degrees. He was not a famous actor or author. He didn't have a bunch of Instagram followers. He was a servant of the Lord who lived in the wilderness, but he turned many people to the Lord. He served the Lord. He humbled himself before God. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie to tie Christ's sandals. Who am I? I'm just a voice pointing to the Savior. That's true greatness. Jesus would say later on, the greatest among you is he who is the servant of all. John the Baptist would be great before the Lord. He would also be qualified and eminently gifted by the Holy Spirit from the womb 
for his task. And it was the Holy Spirit who would allow him to turn those hearts back, back to the Lord and back with each other. Uh, reconciliation would be this great theme of his ministry. But the greatest thing about this announcement of John's birth is not John himself. That was, that's wonderful, that a new prophet would come after 400 years. It was wonderful that Elizabeth's reproach would be taken away. But the most important thing was that this boy will lead the way to the Savior. He will prepare a people for the Lord. How amazing would it be if, if you could put yourself in this situation if God said, your son will prepare the people for Jesus' return. The pressure that puts on godly Zechariah and Elizabeth, but the joy. So they, this person, he would be, there would be joy and gladness. Many people would rejoice in his birth because the long-awaited-for time will come. We were just hearing the words of the, the song being played, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. Now we're on the, he's on the horizon, just around the corner. God's promises are going to come to pass. So this Prayer, the promises lead to prayer. In this case, prayers led to more promises, more clear promises. And it should lead to more rejoicing and prayer. But um, here, Zechariah stumbles. What connects prayers and promises is faith. And here, Zechariah lost faith. Like Peter walking on the water and seeing the waves instead of looking at Jesus. He felt he looked too much at his own inability, his own weakness, rather than God's power, God's strength. And so he asked for some sign. Well, how shall I believe this? For I'm an old man. My wife is old. And Gabriel doesn't say anything about their ability. He speaks of God. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And this will come to pass. So there's mercy mixed with this rebuke too. You're still going to have a baby boy. You're still going to be a father. He's still going to prepare the way for the Lord. I'm not taking any of those things away. But you won't be able to say a word about it. Your mouth will be shut. And from from later on in Luke, it's implied that maybe he couldn't hear either because they had to make motions to him about what the child would be named. Zechariah won't, has the greatest news that anyone's heard in 400 years. Not just that, he's had, he has the greatest news that anyone's heard ever, and he can't say it. This, this would be particularly awkward for Zechariah as he comes out of the temple because the priest who offered up the incense was also supposed to be the priest. He'd come out, as soon as he came out, he would come out to the steps, and he would lift up his hands and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. And Zechariah comes out, maybe he lifts up his hands, and nothing comes out. He's panicked, he's making motions. They don't know what's going on, but they can tell something has happened. He's seen a vision. And this is a, it's an interesting 
punishment that God gives to, to Zechariah. Martin Luther called the gospel glad tidings, good news, something that makes one sing and talk and rejoice. But Zechariah could not do that because of his unbelief. It's no wonder that when Zechariah's tongue is finally loosened later on in this chapter, the first thing he does is worship God. Brothers and sisters, let us not wait as long as we have tongues in our mouths. Let us not wait to praise God. Let us not wait to share the good news. Let us not wait to believe in faith, though we might seem unable in our own power. We are unable. But God has great plans for his church. He will build his church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We might feel small. God's glory will fill the world. Let us believe it. Grasp onto that promise with faith. And let us not wait to share the good news. Let us wait on the Lord in faith and with fervent prayer because the wonderful promises he has for you are yours. And they will come to pass, brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters, how wonderful it is that God has made us all priests of God, that we all have this opportunity to come before him in prayer and to come before him in rejoicing because you have access to Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, to God himself. And his prayers for you are wonderful, his promises for you are wonderful and precious. Let us then take God at his word. Let us believe everything he says and respond with joy and prayer and expectation and hope. Let's pray now. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith that we might receive your word the right way, believing that we might respond to it, that we might be people of prayer. Lord, hear our prayers. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We pray, Lord, that your promises would come to pass, that you would redeem your people from all our iniquities, and that you would build your church. Thank you, Lord, that you are merciful even when we are unfaithful even when we stumble. We ask that you would exalt yourself on earth and can keep us a praying people who cling to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.